Aloha. I'm Dr. Kathy Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. How do you know if you need glasses? Well, things seem a little blurry. Maybe you fail your driver's eye test. Maybe everybody else can see things, but you can't. But what if you're a kid and you don't know what normal is supposed to be? What if your eyes really aren't focusing together all the time and you think that's normal for everyone? Dr. Malcolm Ng is in the studio, expert ophthalmologist at Kapiolani, specializing in eye care for adults and for our keiki. We'll be taking your calls in just a few minutes at 941-3689 on Oahu. Toll free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Dr. Ng, welcome to The Body Show. Hi, and it's happy to be here. Thanks so much. It's Memorial Day. Happy uh, happy holiday for everybody. And uh, hopefully you're out there enjoying and listening to us. We want to make sure we keep your eyes protected. You know, Dr. Ng, let's talk about eye care for kids. How do you know for a child if they can see things correctly? It's well, kind that's, of a basic problem, right? Yeah, it's a, it's a big problem in, in the sense that it could go undetected for many years. And this is one why we have to depend on pediatricians doing visual screening, visual eye tests early in life so that they can refer the patients to ophthalmologists, pediatric ophthalmologists, to make sure that these children do see well. And there are many threats to the early development of vision that have to be dealt with early because of the fact that as you are uh, given a set of eyes, you're not given 20-20 vision in the beginning of your life. You're not born with 20-20. Absolutely not. In fact, you have to develop it. And so in order to develop it, you have to have the clear pathways into the visual area, into the brain that takes care of that sort of thing. And if you have any blockage, which can be provided, say, by a cataract in the eye, for instance, in a child, or even even a child can have a cataract, or they can be misdirected. One eye can be looking way into the center of the head rather than out uh, straight ahead with the other uh, eye and be not working as a team. That eye will be suppressed. There are many threats like that. And, and then if you have a very, very high refractive error, we call that is if the parents wear very thick glasses of some sort, there's about a 50-50 chance that that child will also need that type of correction, visual correction with glasses. So so I could actually blame my parents for bad vision. Well, <laughs> But see, they could blame a, their parents and on and on and it, on. Yeah, there is a genetic link. And uh, with that genetic link in mind, then you have to start early in the testing. Now, you know, if you're not born with 20-20 vision, infants, can they see? Do they just see blurry objects? How do we know what they're seeing? Yeah. Do And how do you test that? Do you just, like, put a big black or white object and see if they track it with their eyes? Or how would you know this? If you just had a child and they're, like, less than a year old, what do you do? Okay, we use what's called the fixation reflex, and that is we put an object, like you said, something that's animated, something that's light. I have a toy that moves and actually makes a little noise and sound, and I put it in front of the child's eye, and and I have them follow that. If they can follow it with both eyes, and I can cover one eye at a time to make sure they're tracking together, I know that they're probably seeing that object. I won't know how good that vision is unless I do what is called a refraction. Now, a refraction is where... The ophthalmologist will put a drop in each eye and relax the focusing mechanism and then look into the eye with an instrument we call a retinoscope. And actually, I can come within about a half diopter, we call it. In other words, very close to the refraction or the power of that eye by that kind of examination, even though the child's only one year old 
or so, maybe six months. Like when I, you know, I wore glasses for years. I think I was one of those people in denial. I didn't want to wear glasses. I didn't think it was hip until finally I just couldn't see. But so that's when you go to the eye doctor and they say, is it better with one or two? <laughs> one or two. So there's a way that you can actually look in the back of someone's eye yeah. as a child and can kind of get pretty close to yes. what their correction would yes, be. Yes, we can do that objectively. That That's the part it's of, the, of the objective exam what we can do with the retinoscope. But we can also do the questionnaire, that part of the subjective, by that's what the doctor was doing for you, putting one lens in front, another lens in front, and asking you whether it's better or not. And that is the subjective part. But, frankly, but you have to be we, able to we, answer that yeah, question. Yeah, that, that's fine for a child that's old enough to answer. But after the age of, say, six maybe or five. But what about the child who's between the age of one and three? There we have to depend on the fixation reflex. We have to look at the eye with a retinoscope and find out what the power is. And between the age of three and five, we can resort to something called the illiter E game where we teach the child to point his fingers in the direction of an E that's held upright or sideways. And so that gives us that subjective. But it's interesting because with this instrument that we use called the retinoscope, we can detect any re refractive error, we call it. We can tell whether the child is very farsighted, very nearsighted, or just normal. So why don't we use that instead of doing the e-game or instead of doing the one or two as adults? Okay, we do that in children with the retinoscope. We also use retinoscope in adults as well. And then we use the subject exam to refine the power. In some of those cases, we will go ahead, like you remember, where they were asking you, is this better number one or better number two? So now, that's I've, just to refine, though. That's not the full I mean, the full exam is done with a retinoscope. I've always wondered, and I don't know if anybody else out there wondered, what if you can't tell the difference between one or two? They're like, then you have to pick one. And I'm like, great. Am I going to screw up my eyes? Because one looks like two, and God only knows what three is going to look like. I mean, how important is it when you do that exam yeah. as an adult? I've always wanted to know, like, does this, if I'm wrong, does it make a huge difference? Yeah, I tell patients, relax, don't worry. I'll, I'll adjust. We call it the art of refraction. Right, well, That's the, why we call it the art. The art always confused me. Yeah, I'm like, I would just get stressed. <laughs> but maybe five is better. Okay. So it doesn't make that much of a difference. You can tell yes. from being the examiner right. exactly what that right. refraction error exactly. would be. Yeah. Okay. Now, let, it's a sunny day outside, and, and we were talking a little bit earlier. You're a surfer, and you like to go out in the water. Lots of people do. We're here in the islands. What should you do if you're out in the water? Let's just talk maybe about kids. Lots of kids go to the beach. It's really sunny outside. Should they be wearing sunglasses? Are we failing to protect the eyes of our youth by not giving them some kind of protection? Absolutely. In fact, you know there's a great emphasis on protection of the skin against the sun. Sure, because SPF, we know it, everything. Right, yeah. and we put on a lot of either clothing or we put on some kind of uh, ointment. We put on something to keep it from burning the skin. Well, what do we put on to burn, keep the eye from burning? Because actually the lens inside the eye, that's the lenticular part of the of the eye, is derived from the same germ layer, we call it, the same embryonic layer as the skin. So it's just as susceptible to UV light, ultraviolet light, or radiation damage that the skin is. But and so it doesn't make sense that we're not protecting the eye when we're going out and protecting the skin. In fact, I'll tell you interesting what happened recently, uh, whether in the last five years or 10 years. In Melbourne, Australia, they're so concerned about the skin cancer rate because they're basically European stock, and they're being fried in the sun, so to speak, down there in Australia. 
And so they had the highest incidence of skin cancer in the world, but they also had a very high incidence and onset of cataracts. And so they put the two and two together in a 1983 um, study done at Johns Hopkins by, uh, I know the, the investigators on this, but what they found out was that if you protected the eye with sunglasses and you're a fisherman, you delayed the onset of your cataract. So it made sense for those same investigators then to spread the word, and the doctors down in, in Melbourne, Australia, got a law passed that all the children have to go out, when they went out for recess, they not only put on a bonnet, they call it, or a hat, a cap, but they also put on sunglasses or, you know, dark glasses, and they also screened their, um, put on sunscreen to help prevent. So they, they were, had a com combination of a prevention program to prevent cataracts and to prevent uh, skin damage, all due to radiation. And, and, you know, dermatologists tell us that you absorb 80% of the ultraviolet in your system by the age of 18. So does it make sense not to have the kids in sunglasses? Uh-uh. It really does Very important to do it. Sure. Now, I know about uh, Melbourne, Australia. I was lucky enough <laughs> to convince my medical school that I should do a dermatology rotation there down under because they have such a high rate of skin cancer. This was medically necessary. And I went to Melbourne for six weeks and had a grand old time and did a little bit of work and a yeah. lot of bit of fun. So, you know, they are very concerned. And I remember seeing mm -hmm. a lot more emphasis there mm -hmm. about skin cancer protection. And you would see, I mean, sunglasses were everywhere. We have them here in the islands, though, and I still don't see people putting sunglasses on their kids. I mean, mm -hmm. they have little ones that are, I guess, a dollar or two that are just meant for fun. But do they need, do parents need to look for the same UVA, UVB ratings like they would for themselves? Yes, you know, in fact, in the United States, you cannot sell anything described as a sunglass without a certain rating. It has to be able to absorb a certain amount of UV light, and so it's important. So that you're protected by the federal law on that if you just get cakey glasses, sunglasses. So you should start early, and I, I started early in my family. I start, you know, as soon as my grandchildren were born, I said, hey, you know what? You've got to protect your eyes. You've got to start wearing these sunglasses. But so you made it kind of cool. I made it cool, but here's the thing. You know, there was a sun-safe program by a very prominent private school, I will not name, over the radio. And I read all about it in the paper. So I thought, oh, how neat. They have a sun-safe program. Well, they have a sun-safe program for the, for the skin. Maybe they'll be interested in a sun-safe program for the eyes. So I went to this particular private school and talked to some of the administrators and said, look, why not incorporate the fact that you're, you're – Protecting the kids' skin out there in recess, during recess hours. That Remember, in Melbourne, you don't go out. If, if you're a kid, you don't go out in recess unless you have sun safety on your skin and your eyes. So I said, well, wouldn't you like to incorporate then using dark glasses? You have the parents bring dark glasses, buy dark glasses. They can be inexpensive. They can bring, bring them in. I ran into huge resistance on that. I couldn't believe it. It and I'll tell you another private school also, same thing. I went to that school. So there's not just one, a second private school. Went there and talked to the administrator, said, how about doing this? And here's what we ran into, I ran into. They said, well, we can't put those sunglasses on the children. You know why? Because, first of all, we have so many regulations for the parents already <laughs> in these schools. They're going to object to another one. That was one that they gave me. However, they didn't even try. And second, they said, the, pay, the teachers won't be able to see the children's eyes. Now, I thought that was absolutely ridiculous because I said, well, 
Do you need to see the children's eyes when you're out there in, in recess and they're running around? I don't think so. But, you know, I could get, I got nowhere, not even to first base on that. So, wow. so what okay. I have to do is p- spread the word in my own private practice and tell the parents, you know what? You have Send to protect your kids, your kids with sunglasses, yeah. yeah. That's exactly right. So well, I gave up on the, on the school thing. All right. So we had to give up on the schools. All right. Well, not maybe not. Maybe things have changed. Okay. I'm Dr. Kathy Kozak sitting here in the studio with expert ophthalmologist Dr. Malcolm Ng. We would love to take your call if you have a question about sunglasses for your kids or even for yourself. You can join us at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, 1-877-941-3689. Now, tell me, Dr. Ng, we're talking about sunglasses for kids and you know, I don't see, you know, I've gone to the beach and I don't see a lot of kids wearing glasses. I have to say, I saw a dog wearing sunglasses once and it was <laughs> such a cute dog and I, and I just wanted to pick it up and, you know, give it a hug. And uh, I asked the owner, why is your dog wearing sunglasses? And they're like, well, I got to protect their eyes. And I thought, that makes a lot of sense. But how come no one else is wearing them? So, you know, it's one of those things where I guess this is sort of your mission now. But you surf a lot, yeah. and you have a pair of glasses that you wear, yes, even do. for adults, yes. when you're in the water. Yeah. I mean, I would think you're out there in the water, yeah. you've got the sun reflecting on the water right yeah. into your eyes. Yeah. Your regular pair of sunglasses might fall off depending on what Absolutely. happens when you're in the waves. So yeah. tell me, as an adult, what kind of sunglasses do you wear, particularly when you're out there surfing? Well, we have specially designed surf glasses. So these are glasses that have the sun protection. They have a rubberized nose piece so you don't bang your nose if you get hit and, you know, with a wave or something. And you have a strap that goes around the back. And then I always use a kind of a belt and suspenders idea because I use a little lanyard or um, cord that goes through the part of the lens and is attached to my surf, surf jacket as well. So if it happens to pop off, it's especially big wave, I'll still keep my glasses. Then there's one little caveat, and that is you must treat the lens with some anti-fogging solution like you use from a dive shop or something like that prior to going out so it allows the water to come off very easily. But there's one more thing about eye protection, and I'd like to bring it up. The other day I was at Alamoana Bowls. I was surfing. There was some really good surf, and there were a bunch of really hotshot little kids, really good, right in front of me. They were taking off and the good waves and everything. And I noticed their boards. They're all sharp-pointed boards. And, you know, you can take a little silicone tip that you can buy for $15, and you can put that on the tip. And since I've had to treat eye lacerations and eye damage due to these pointy boards, I mean, it just makes sense that the parents should say, you know what, you can, you can surf, okay, whoever it is, but you must put a silicone tip on well, that's another important thing. Make sure that that you have not only your eyes protected from the sun, but also from your surfboard. I mean, yeah, you're right. Exactly. This is a sharp exactly. piece of sports equipment that right. could really hurt somebody. Right. And, you know, it tends to the, the tip comes first, so you're right. right. You're <laughs> right. Well, we've got some callers on the line. We've got Rick from California. Rick, welcome to The Body Show. Yes. Um, I just wanted to say, first off, I visited Hawaii back in 1988 uh, with my mother, father, brother, and younger sister. And um, I'd like to put out a hello to someone who I met on the, uh, there used to be a boat called an Advent- the Adventure 5 boat. Uh, she was one of the dancers. Her name is Kalani. And now the, for my call, um, the um, two things. Uh, what is the name of the clinic that uh, you work at, Dr. Ng? Well, uh, I have my own private practice, and it's Malcolm Ng, R, Malcolm R with the initial R, I-N-G, 
And I have a website if you happen to look for it. It's Malcolm. It's www.malcolmingimd.com. So and Malcolm is? I, Malcolm, M-A-L-C-O-L-M. Okay. I thought, you know, you would think that the University of Hawaii at Manoa would have a department of ophthalmology as well as a department of neurology. I say that because I was born blind. I was born with optic nerve hypoplasia. And I got to uh, tell uh-huh. you that out here we got some uh, great research looking to uh, cure the optic nerve hypoplasia. Mm-hmm. Uh, one way is by using stem cells to regenerate not just the optic nerve, but any other areas of the brain that are underdeveloped. And then we have another team, both in San Francisco and in Pennsylvania, uh, working to repair and or rewire the brain using um, micro and nano uh, surgical devices with micro and nanotechnology. Are there any neuro-ophthalmologists in Hawaii or no? Because I know there's blind people. Yes, there are. There are no practicing physicians who uh, limit their practice only to uh, neuro um, Neuro-ophthalmology, however, a lot of us are very interested in this. In fact, you mentioned the medical school. There is a um, section of ophthalmology under the Department of Surgery, in which I am the chair and professor of ophthalmology at the clinical professor at the medical school. So um, we're doing research in many areas, and particularly in the area of cross eyes and how important it is to get the eyes straightened at an early age to preserve binocular vision. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. So, uh, but as far as hypoplasia, you bring that up, and of course, we look for that in children who come in who have uh, problems with vision, and then we have to make sure that their growth is normal as well, because sometimes it's coupled with the fact that they won't grow, uh, you know, their body size will be actually... And they learn, and or yeah. they won't learn mm-hmm. or behave the same way, because yeah. I have, a, as part of a disorder called Demorgier syndrome, yeah. also known as septo-optic dysplasia. Correct. That's, and that's not only can you get hypoglycemia in that, mm-hmm. you can get obesity and type 2 diabetes, which mm-hmm. is what I have. Luckily, I'm, I'm just starting to turn it around. Mm-hmm. But um, in any case, um, so because um, I look for ophthalmology and neurology in the University of Hawaii, I know I go to the John A. Burns School of Medicine website. There's nothing on there. That's, that, that's correct. We do not have separate, uh, we don't have a department of ophthalmology. We have a section of ophthalmology under the Department of Surgery. And we have no particular subspecialist in uh, neuro-ophthalmology. All right, Rick. Well, thanks so much for calling us all the way from California. And it's certainly we need to attract some more docs here on the islands to help people out. But nice to know in California we do have another sister state that has some expertise in these areas. So thanks for bringing that up. And, uh, you know, you mentioned you were here in 1988. It sounds like you need to do a little aloha trip and come on out. And uh, certainly would be nice to to know that hopefully you've gotten some of these conditions under control. And, you know, you can live a nice, long, happy life. And despite having some eye issues, find ways to make sure that you stay healthy. So thanks for calling us today, Rick, from California. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Malcolm Ng. He is an expert ophthalmologist, and he is here ready to answer your question and mine about what to do regarding keeping the kids healthy with their vision and with their eyes. When we come back, we'll talk some more about it, but you can give us a holler at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, 1-877-941-3689. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. On the next Humankind... Life expectancy in this country was 47 in 1900, and it's, it's close to 80 now, and among some 
uh, ethnic groups, it's over 80. With extra time, many people are starting new careers later in life. Next time on Humankind. This evening at 6.30, right after Marketplace. The Irish are known for their way with words, and they have a literary history to prove it. For centuries, the island has been an important center for the visual arts as well. The Dark Ages didn't really darken Ireland. We were just as bright as we ever were, you know? That meant uh, Christianity survived, and the most famous example is the Book of Kells. Explore the art scenes in Ireland and in Southeast Asia on this week's Travel with Rick Steves. Tuesday at 4 p.m., right after Fresh Air. Aloha. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathy Kozak here in the studio with ophthalmologist extraordinaire Dr. Malcolm Ng. And we are talking about healthy eyes and vision for anybody of any age. But let's talk about our kids in particular. We've got a phone number if you have a question at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Dr. Ng, during the break, we had a shy caller who said, you mentioned it's regulated that you have to have UVA, UVB ratings on sunglasses. So can anybody go to any store in the island and purchase something that says sunglasses and know that there's some protection? Are there different levels of protection? Yes. Actually, there is a safety factor built in now because of federal law, and it has to be able to block uh, UV 400, et cetera, on the way up. So you you have some assurance that if you buy a pair of glasses that are advertised as sunglasses, that they will give you the protection. Not so, however, if you go to a foreign country. And let's say you go to a country and buy one for 25 cents or whatever cheap price, and I'm not going to name names of countries, but I know that they're sold without regulation. And they might be just colored, and they look okay, they look fashionable, but they're not going to protect you. Then again, um, children are hard to fit. So it would probably be wise to look at for a pediatric ophthalmologist to get the smaller editions of the sunglasses. So you can get, you know, your favorite ones. I've had, boy, a pair of Ray-Bans for years. Mm-hmm. You can find those for kids, specially sized for yes. them. It yes. might be a little bit harder, but yeah. you can find them. Yes, absolutely. Now, what about some of those fancy, you know, if you were to get, like, designer sunglasses from Gucci or Prada or <laughs> Valentino, they're all they're sunglasses. Yeah. They're sold. They have to have UVA, UVA. Correct. Mm-hmm. All right, we've got another caller on the line. We've got Pete from Kahalu. Pete, welcome to The Body Show. What can we do for you today? Oh, thanks for taking my call. Um, I'm, well, before you touched on the last subject, uh, I'm local boy, local Holly, and um, I was told from uh, back in the 70s that uh, just regular dark glasses weren't that uh, good for you, that they would... Uh, uh, make your pupil dilate and actually let in more of the UV light, and I didn't know that they had a special rated. My question was about uh, polarized sunglasses and how efficient they were at protecting the eyes. Good question, because, you know, I kind of wonder myself, Pete, you have these options, polarized or not, and it always kind of looks cool when you look through polarized and you know, it's kind of interesting. So it's actually a good question. Prior to the ratings, Dr. Ng, do you know when we started to have these ratings for sunglasses? And and prior to that, any pair of dark glasses, is it true? I mean, your pupil might dilate a little. Yes, what that's would correct. In fact, they were not protective until that law was passed, and that was probably in the, in the 1980s. So in the 70s, you're right, they were inefficient and, and didn't do the protection. As far as polarization goes, I think that adds a layer of comfort 
I don't think it adds that much more protection, but it is very good in, in protecting against reflected glare to have polarization in your lens, so you get more detail. In fact, you see the fishermen going out there, and they love polarized glasses to be able to see the fish under the water because the reflected light, you see, is intercepted. And bring up fishermen, there was a study that was done in Baltimore by the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine in 19, the mid-1980s that brought this all to a uh, scientific basis. And that's where they tracked uh, many, 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 I think hundreds of fishermen and tracked the how, how many hours they were in the sun with or without sunglasses. And then they tracked the onset of cataracts because you can promote cataract formation by uh, allowing this uh, UV light to hit your lens for many years. Radiation is all cumulative. So the longer you accumulate it, the longer you go without sunglasses, the more ra radiation damage you have to your eye, and you bring on the onset of cataracts. Now, here's the thing. In the United States, the average cataract age, let's put it this way, the average age for cataract extraction in this country is 72 years. What if you mandated everyone to wear sunglasses from a very early age? You could theoretically at least shift that further on down and save lots of money for the government, for Medicare, for instance, because even though the cost of cataract surgery is not very high uh, individually, accumulatively, it's the highest surgical bill Medicare pays. In other words, the dollars paid by Medicare for cataract extraction in this country is the highest of any procedure. No other procedure comes close, cataract, you know, like cardiac procedures, hips, or anything. Eyes, because it all almost always have to be operated when they're in the 70s, patients with cataracts. What if you shifted that back five years? Think of the money you would save in your, in your population and, and in your Medicare costs. It well, would be terrific. Sure, and we do try and yeah. regulate a lot of other things. Yeah. You know, we try and regulate things for healthy eating habits. And, you know, in New York, they were trying to regulate sizes of sodas to reduce <laughs> issues yeah. with, uh, with weight and heart disease. And you're right. I mean, certainly if we can prevent people from mm. having to do cataract surgery, I guess, okay, so what if you weren't really that good with sunglasses when you were younger? Is it ever too late? I mean, if somebody out there is listening saying, okay, I'm going to go get myself a pair of sunglasses – Starting to wear them now at mm -hmm. any age, helpful? Yes. Definitely. No matter what? Definitely. Not yes. just to prevent wrinkles. I know no, that's something no. I heard. <laughs> prevent wrinkles around the eye, wear yeah. sunglasses. I'm yeah. like, do I have to take them off indoors? No. But, uh, but certainly you can get sunglasses. And even if you are in your 70s and you don't have cataracts, it can help you to prevent Absolutely. and protect your And eyes. also protect your eye against uh, development, something called a pterygium, which is a little growth on the surface. You'll see that in many fishermen. Surfers have it. And that also, you know, I think that's something that can be surgically removed, particularly yeah. if it starts to pull yeah. the eye inwards yeah. and cause almost like a, an acquired cross-eye. Yeah, well, it, it can do that if it scars down, but the thing is it can also block the vision if it comes over the pupil. And I, Two I, reasons to get now, rid of it. I, I know in my own practice I've seen some neglected cases that came up from Samoa, for instance, and the pterygium was already across the pupil. So I actually restored some vision by taking off the, the pterygium by removing those. So definitely something that it's never too late. Wear your glasses. And if you get that pterygium, then yeah. it is something that can be surgically removed. Well, you mentioned that there's some research that you've done in the past, and you're fairly world-renowned for it, identifying mm -hmm. some of the issues with young children yeah. as far as cross eyes, lazy eye. What are some of those conditions? Because they, they tend to be something that, you know, you might address when you're younger to avoid having problems when you're older. Mm -hmm. What is, for example, 
cross eyes and and why do people get it and how do you fix it yeah well this is this happens in a uh, i'd say two percent of the population perhaps that that high where the eye isn't directed this right eye and left eye do not track together and do not uh, line up the targets so one eye is crossed in let's say and that becomes suppressed then and the brain starts to suppress that very early and very easily so that that vision the pathway between the front of the eye and the part of the brain in the back called the visual cortex they don't get connected so you don't make these connections early in life then no matter how straight you make that eye let's say you do it the operation at age uh, four to six that eye may have permanent visual damage in two ways one it won't have the vision that would would have developed in that particular eye unless the ophthalmologist saw them the pediatric ophthalmologist and started patching over the the one that was preferred early in life and number two if you didn't align those eyes together by the age of two, and now we even start by the age of one to get those eyes aligned, it's, it's important because your binocular vision, that's your depth perception, that won't develop after the age of two. It's very, very unlikely that you're going to start to get a person to have, let's say if he's born cross-eyed all that life, and then at age five you make a cosmetically straight eye out of the situation, that is not going to be binocular vision. That's just cosmetic. That's cosmetic. So if you have a child born with cross eyes, mm -hmm. it's a surgical procedure to fix it. Yes. You have to do it early, and you have to treat the preference of one eye over the other with patching usually. In and sometimes you use glasses also to help realign the eye. That's also used in some, re in some cases. But the main effort is surgical. And what do you do surgically? Like, if somebody mm -hmm. has a cross eye, do you do you surgically pull back a muscle in a certain way? I mean, how yeah. do you do that and still allow them to have rotary function of the eye? Yeah, exactly. There are six muscles attached to each eye, and those ones that pull the into the center of the eye, called the medial recti, those are the first muscles to be operated usually, and we relax those muscles. Sometimes we tighten the outside muscle, called resection. We tighten the lateral rectus muscle. But the whole idea is to bring that eye within five degrees of one another in order to develop binocular vision. And, and if you do you, it as early as you can. If you wait until, oh, let's wait until he's older. We don't want to have a yeah. young baby have surgery. Yeah. Bad idea. Do yeah. it as soon as you Bad can. Bad idea. And minor uh, procedure. Yeah. Well, it's, it's not minor in the sense it's, it's full general surgery. And so there are always risks for, you know, there's general anesthetic. And then, but the, there's a fairly low risk, for instance, for infection. There's fairly low risk of, of losing vision. And actually, your benefit risk-benefit ratio is very good in, in respect to aligning the eye surgically. Sure, I can't. I mean, and it's done as an outpatient procedure. In fact, when I first got here, and back in 1960, 70. <laughs> all right, in the 60s and well, 70s, 60s, we were and doing. 70s, yeah, okay. we're, we're, we were, we were at that time. Everyone was admitting the child, for instance, overnight. And I had been trained in Washington, D.C., where it was an outpatient procedure. So we did it as outpatient. It was the first eye surgery outpatient procedures done here in Hawaii were done on children with cross eyes at Capulani. That and wasn't Capulani children. Okay. So, and I, yeah, I was involved with it. So, so you certainly have a lot of experience <laughs> doing this sort of yeah. procedure. All right. Well, we've got a caller. We've got Lloyd on the phone from Waikiki. Lloyd, welcome to The Body Show. Yes, I enjoy your show. It's very informative. Thank As you. a matter of fact, I got some uh, good information about that neurology over at Castle. I went, I went over there to have my uh, brain scanned to see if I'd had a stroke or anything. Um, the reason I'm calling is 
you, haven't they come up with anything better than them asking you if that letter looks clearer or, or, or better one way or the other when they switch back and forth with patch, you know, with one eye patch or one closing one eye? Or it's a good question, Lloyd. I think I know what you mean. When you're getting your glasses and they're doing that uh, test, so which one looks better, one or two? Yeah, and then they go to another one. You yeah. know, and it's it's kind of curious because I've always wondered how important is that. It's, we talked about a little earlier about uh, being part of the art of how you establish somebody's need for glasses. But you're right. I mean, we, you know, is there anything better? Have you had troubles when you go to get glasses and they've they've kind of mentioned one or two and does that confuse you a little? Yes. Me does. too. Yeah, yeah I, I always I, wonder. I, I, sometimes it's not too bad, but other times, you know, I, it's on a borderline. And also I wanted to ask you one other question, if I could, quickly. Sure. I, I'm 75. And I just got a new new prescription not too long ago. Oh, it's been about six months, I guess. And now I'm noticing my reading is fine. I have bifocals. But looking at the television, sometimes not real fine print, but just some sort of print on the television, and I'm pretty close to the television, uh, is blurry. Do your eyes go do deteriorate quickly at 75 as you get older? It's a good question, Lloyd. So, so Dr. Ring, the first one is, haven't they come up with anything better? We sort of talked about that retinoscope, but yeah. we're still using the old equipment. Well, One or two is better because <clears throat> it works. We uh-huh. use the retinoscope as the objective test. We use subjective to just refine it slightly within quarter diopter of one another. It's not really that uh, complicated, frankly. Although patients will have a problem with making a decision based on one other thing, and that is how good is the retina in the back. Now, if you have problems in the retina in the back or you have a small cataract coming on, then your your answers are not going to be that sure for you. And that's one of the reasons you'll, you'll need to have the rest of the eye examined besides just doing the refraction, oh, as we call it. Where they don't yeah, the so, I, so I would say this, that you, you better check out what else is going on in your eye. If your glasses uh-huh. were perfectly good, let's say, at one particular six-month period, and now... They're not so good. Right. Well, then there must be something else going uh-huh. on. If you're having a change okay. in the refraction. Yes, that's very so helpful. Important. Yes, I thought that was a little yeah. soon for it not yeah. to get out, get out of focus so quickly. Sure. There must be some other thing that's causing this other than just the, um, the glass re- correction. Mm-hmm. All right, Lloyd, you Thank got you an so answer. Time to get sure. the eyes checked out. Absolutely, and thanks for calling us today uh, from Waikiki. If you've got a question, it's just you're dying to know the answer. What happens when you get glasses or, in particular, eye sun protection for uh, for the eyes, not just for the skin? You can give us a holler at 941-3689. Toll Free Neighbor Islands, 877-941-3689. Dr. Ring, that's kind of curious. You know, you mentioned that if you have a hard time making a decision— then it could be something else going on in your eye. If you get a pair of glasses, and it seems like a short period of time between, hey, these were perfect six months ago, why are they not now? It could be some other process in the eye. Yes. When you get a pair of glasses, let's just say that your eye is healthy and normal, and you have yourself measured, you do the one or two, and you find the perfect pair of glasses for you, how long should they last? Well, if you have no other conditions. No other conditions. And you're not still growing, that is, you're not a youngster. You're full grown. They can last as much as two and three and four and five years. I mean, I I have some patients, I don't change the prescription for three to four years at least that long. So it's a matter of what else is going on mostly that makes the changes. Can sun exposure 
result in a quicker deterioration in vision? Yes, it can in the terms of long-term. Let's put it this way. If your son hits the unprotected lens of your eye, it's going to promote a cataract. So, so you're going to start, ch get those lenticular changes will start in the 60s, uh, and by the 70s and mid-70s, they're going to be quite well developed by that time. So that's when you start to have trouble making those distinctions probably too. So and light and glare bothers you, for instance, you were driving at night and you glare, you know, toward headlights or at sunlight. So, so you kind of want to get prescription glasses that work, but also prescription sunglasses. Yes, and also look at have a very good thorough look in the eye. Because I want to mention, since we're gone a little bit away from the topic of pediatric ophthalmology, which is my area of specialty, subspecialty, but uh, I should mention one other, which is glaucoma. Glaucoma is where there's increased pressure in the eye, and you have to be screened for that, especially if you have a family history. And that would have to be done every year. That is an eye pressure measurement by an ophthalmologist or an eye care professional. Make sure about the pressure in the eye because if it goes undetected, it will decrease your vision by, uh, let's say, encroaching on your side vision first. And so you'll be unaware of it until quite late. So, so glaucoma get a good very eye exam. Yeah, it's very Make important. sure. Yeah. Even for Part kids, how like if if you mentioned pediatric ophthalmology is your yeah. area of, of yeah. expertise, when should parents take their children for their first full eye exam? We recommend between the age of three and four years of age because this is in the preschool area. This is when if there's an amblyopia or lazy eye that's found, they can be treated with patching glasses and other treatments. That is important to get it early, that early, and. We also say that the pediatricians or family practitioners, they, they should start their screening very, very early. I mean, at birth. And they look for a red reflex, for instance, off the pupil. And that's the, uh, in order to detect, for instance, a cataract or something else going on in the eye. It's important to get started early. But the pediatricians, if they have any kind of question about it, the pediatricians here in, in our community are very good about referral. And they'll refer them early if there's any question. So. So if you are a parent or a grandparent and you have three, four, or five-year-old child and they've never had an eye exam mm -hmm. and they seem to see fine, still yeah. get them a full eye I exam. Think, I Detect think that's a good time early. to get a complete exam. Yeah. Because if you have, now you mentioned yeah. lazy eye, and that's, right. that's something we're going to talk about in just a minute. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. I'm Dr. Kathy Kozak here in the studio with world-renowned ophthalmologist Dr. Malcolm Ng, and we are here on Memorial Day, ready to take your call if you've got a question, 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, and the mainland, 1-877-941-3689. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. If you want to know more details about HPR's history and mission, or information on how to donate a car, rent the Atherton studio, or just want to send an email to someone on the staff, you'll find it all at hawaiipublicradio.org. Go to the link called About HPR and check out the pull-down menu. It's all there. The HPR website. It's just a click away. They walk down the hall of their soundproofed, happy life home, this house which clothed and fed and rocked them to sleep and played and sang and was good to them. Stephen Colbert reads Ray Bradbury this week on Selected Shorts from PRI, Public Radio International. Tuesday at 5 p.m., following Travel with Rick Steves. 
Aloha. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathy Kozak here with Dr. Malcolm Ng. He's a part-time surfer, part-time painter, and a full-time ophthalmologist taking care of not just the kids but also the adults here in the islands. You can join our conversation at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, mainland, and beyond, 1-877-941-3689. Now, Dr. Malcolm, right before we had the break, we, you mentioned something about lazy eye, and it's not as easy to, to identify as a parent as cross eyes. I mean, I think if someone yeah. is born with cross eyes, that's that's something you can pretty much see. Yeah. What is a lazy eye, and what makes the, li- the eye so darn lazy? Well, we, we term this lazy, it's sort of a unfair judgment on the person or on, on this condition because it's not voluntary. But involuntarily, the eye will drift apart or drift up sometimes. It it depends. It won't always be straight. And it starts sometimes very early. You'll look at a child and say, wow, he's got this glassy look. What what is going on? And the eye will actually be deviating outward rather than uh, staying straight with its neighbor eye. And it happens generally when the child is looking at something farther away than rather than something near. That's the typical. And it also can happen, for instance, right after a nap or right after a child gets up, you'll see that drift, and then you'll say, but, gee, it's not always there, so what's going on? Best thing is to go to an ophthalmologist and find out what is really going on. And it could be late. this lazy eye situation. It could be, yeah, and pediatric ophthalmologists in, in particular are trained to detect which eyes are being used and how they're being used. In other words, if there's a preference for one and whether the drift... Sometimes I'll, I'll have a pay set of parents will bring in the child, and they'll say, my child's eyes do drift, and I won't be able to detect it, for instance, in the room that I'm in. For instance, the room is limited to 20 feet. That's where my target. I usually have a little uh, animated toy. For instance, if they're under the age of three, I just turn the toy on, and he gets up and makes noise and attracts the child's vision. I so think it would probably attract my vision, yeah. too. I want <laughs> to picture this in my head, this little toy yeah, going around. All that, right. That's my assistant. So um, any case, it may not show up there, but I will take the child over to the window in my office and have them look out the window, and that's where I see the eyes drift. So there is sometimes, and that's intermittent. We call it intermittent exotropia or intermittently lazy, you might say. So those, those eyes, however, must be treated just as, and followed just as carefully as the ones that cross in because they can be totally suppressed too, and the vision may not develop real well in the eye that keeps getting you know, drifting out. So they can be treated. First, you have to detect whether they need a, a glasses correction. Sometimes they do. And secondly, if that drift comes on more than once a day, it may be a surgical problem. In other words, you may have to have pediatric ophthalmologists align that eye to make sure that it stays straight with its neighbor. And again, just as important, you want to make sure that the pathway from the eye to the brain develops. If you have this condition, lazy eye, yes. could that pathway become underdeveloped? Yes, it can. I had the pleasure and the honor to be on a, a panel last year with uh, Dr. Torsten Wiesel. Now, Dr. Wiesel and Dr. Hubel were two neurophysiologic uh, researchers at Harvard. Uh, 20 years ago, or almost 40 years ago now, I guess it was in the 60s, they started developing the physiologic studies and anatomic studies uh, in cats and in other animals first. And what they did was they sold the cat's eyelids together or they disrupted the alignment by actually uh, severing the muscle on it, let the eye drift outward or inward. And they found out that those little tracks that develop between the eye and the brain, they wouldn't develop. 
and uh, there was a time window in which they would develop. In other words, if they reversed that, if they opened the lids within three weeks in kittens, then they had no damage shown in the brain or in the visual pathways. But if they allowed the lids to stay closed shut, then, of course, the damage was irreversible even when they opened the lids. So this gave us an idea. Okay, we have a time window. All mammals have a time window. And in children, it's fairly critical, too. It's not two or three weeks, though. It's not that critical, that, that short. But you have to make sure that the child's eyes are being used equally well by, let's say, age six months. All right. Well, that sounds like, you know, you have to make sure that pretty carefully. And as a parent, really keep a watch on that. Make sure kids get their eyes checked out. Mm -hmm. We've got a couple more callers. We have Carolyn from Kahului. Carolyn, welcome to The Body Show. Yes, good afternoon. Um, For the vast majority of my life, um, I see, like, black threads that run through my vision, um, especially if I look at, like, a white wall or a light-colored wall. Um, that's my first question. What the heck is that? Because nobody's ever been able to tell me anything. Um, and now later in life, I find that I have to wear those plus 150 reading glasses. But when I go in to get my eyes checked, the doctors tell me that I have 20-20 vision. So those oh, are Carolyn, my questions I'm jealous. for you. I have a feeling those reading glasses are going to be on my agenda soon. All right. Yeah. So, Carolyn, so you've got 20-20 vision, or so you thought. But you got these weird black things, and then you also wear reading glasses. Interesting, interesting. Dr. Ng, the, the black lines, is that something that, you know, people talk about floaters and they see yeah, things kind of floating around? That, those are floaters, correct. So mm-hmm. Carolyn's the only one well, who sees it. Nobody else does. No, no, she's not the only one. I see this every day. Oh, I mean, my people tell you other people, people come see in it. and okay. say, I have these floated little cobwebby things floating around. And they're actually collagen fibrils that have broken down. See, here's what happens. There's this jelly fluid we call the vitreous that sits in front of the retina. And as we get older, or if we happen to be highly nearsighted, it tends to liquefy. I mean, you could call it crudely melting. It's not really melting because it's not My due to heat. My eyes are melting. Yeah, okay. no, but, but what happens is this gel liquefies. As it liquefies, the little supporting framework of collagen fibers breaks down and frees up these little fibrils that float around. They can be very annoying. I mean, it can come in your center of vision, and then, you know, eventually you either start ignoring them or they, they actually gravitate and go out of the, your line of vision so you don't need to worry about it. But just as the caller said, you know, I have some myself, and I notice them mostly when I'm snorkeling. If I'm snorkeling with a snorkel mask and I'm looking at a sandy, homogeneous, sandy bottom in the ocean, oh, I see them all the time. But that's, that's against a, a certain white background, gray background, gray sky. They're often very noticeable that way. It's almost universal. I guess a lot of people don't see them, but they don't notice them. Actually, I can look in the eye and see a lot of them, and I, I, sometimes I hesitate to even tell them, do you see that floater? Because if I do, oh, they're going to start looking for the them time. and start them. Gotcha. <laughs> so this so. is pretty common. No, it's very common. And don't worry about it. Yeah. And it's not yeah. a sign of, yeah. if you get a lot of floaters, is this yeah. ever a sign of anything yeah. serious or yeah. just ignore yeah. them? Yeah. Well, the initial ones, you should have a complete eye exam. Because okay. if you suddenly see a group, especially if they're small little black dots, those black dots could represent blood uh, cells that have ruptured. These cells uh, coming out of a ruptured vessel could signify a retinal tear, and that should be treated with laser so you don't get a retinal detachment. So, yeah, there are some that you really pay, pay attention to. The other thing you'll notice is flashing of light. Sometimes when this happens, when the jelly 
fluid starts to liquefy. It pulls away from the retina. As it pulls away from the retina, it causes this little streaking of light in the periphery of the eye. So you'll see those. But getting to our last question, which was about the presbyopia, we call it. Presby means uh, old, opia site. Everyone oh, gets thank it. you so Everyone. much, I'm Sorry Dr. about Ng. that, but old <laughs> sites. between forty Presby and fifty, <laughs> yes, All right. someone is gonna. You're gonna have to have. <laughs> we're gonna have some use for reading glasses. Plus lenses are used to magnify the lens, and what happens there is the lens itself starts to lose its elasticity. It becomes more dense. Doesn't respond to accommodation or focusing. So, so that's why you anybody put you get your reading glasses yeah. eventually sooner or later. Sooner or later, <laughs> Sooner you're or later. so making me happy. Yeah, yes. All right. Well, thank you, Carolyn, for your question. Now I'm depressed. I'm going to have old sight, presbyopia. That sounds fabulous. <laughs> All right. Well, we've got another caller on the line. We have Byron from IAEA. Byron, don't depress me. What can we do for you today? Oh, hi, Malcolm. Uh, this is uh, Byron. Uh, I'm a colleague of uh, Dr. Ings, actually, and I had a, a couple questions for him. Uh, the first one, I know you talked about uh, protective eyewear for surfing, but is there a threshold for any type of outdoor sports at which we should consider uh, our kids to wear sunglasses for protective effect against the sun? Yes. And the other question is the opposite. Are there any sports or activities, and I'm thinking something like soccer, where uh, protective um, eyewear would actually be contraindicated because they're trying to hit the ball with their head? Oh, I always wonder why they hit the ball with their head. I know it's good. I know it's okay, but I used to... It's not so okay, okay, actually. I was never able to do that. I played soccer when I was in grade school, and I mean, I could kick the ball really far, but, you know, putting my head in the direction of a ball, I've got to tell you, there was just something that just never worked out for me. But two excellent questions, Byron. I don't know, Dr. Ng, you're in the hot seat from your colleague. I would wear safety glasses. Uh, if I was in any missile sport, we call it missile, meaning a ball coming at you, that would be baseball, that would be tennis, that would be even basketball. I mean, fingers get stuck in people's eyes that way. So it's probably a good idea to have it even there, although it's more rare. But particularly, take up soccer, for instance. The soccer ball is pretty big, so it won't hit inside the orbit so necessarily, but could, it could give you a concussion injury to the eye. And the other thing I'd be concerned about, though, in, in head, headers, as they call it, there's been some studies now that show that there's premature uh, aging of the brain, dementia, you might call it, in women's sports that uh, women soccer players early in life now are starting to show some signs of that. So I don't know what's going to be the solution for that, but I can tell you that a, a, a soccer ball traveling, you know, wanging you in the head, in the back of the head or in the front is not so great. I mean, it's probably the equivalent of a punch. So, you know, head injuries now have been associated with football, with boxing, and early dementia. So, <laughs> you know, I would protect the head some way, but I don't know how we're going to do that if you're going to allow headers. So. so when we talk about sunglasses for outdoor sports, if you're playing outdoors, yeah. should you just wear them, some type of eye protection? I would wear them. And if it's outdoors and there's a lot of sun, just yeah. do it? Just do it. Okay. And if it's soccer? Yeah. Don't hit the ball with your head, but if you do, yeah. <laughs> eye protection. I was always afraid. I got to tell you, my parents used to think that I was sporty. They got over that pretty quickly. Yeah. I was just, you know, even softball, the ball comes yeah. at me. I'm like, let me run in the other direction. I just never had that thought of let me hit it with my head, well, not even with a bat. I was just bad at it. Kathy, let's face it. You've already prevented one step of the, one step in there the direction you go. of dementia. I'm, I may have the presbyopia, <laughs> but uh, but all right. So so we don't have to worry so much about uh, about 
while. It's me heading it and uh, heading a ball and getting into trouble. All right, Byron, was there anything else you had to you had to ask us today? No, that's it. Thanks a lot, Malcolm. All right. Thank you so much for calling us and uh, putting our guest in the hot seat. Okay. So so now let's talk a little bit about um, parents and kids. If they're listening, kids under three or four, get your eyes checked out. Make sure that everything's okay. And how often should they do that? You know, their kids playing sports and they might not be wearing sunglasses and stuff. Um, do parents, should they get their kids' eyes checked every year by an ophthalmologist? No, not necessarily. Or is, like, the school nurse wears the E pretty yeah, okay? Yeah, school nurse, but also we're depending on our primary care doctors. Pediatricians will check, check the vision every year, and they should be checking it every year. And if there are defects found, they're going to refer the patient. However, you know, I some kind of visual test. I tried to get the Lions Club in, interested in this over 20 years ago. I taught a group of Lions to do the Litter E game, for instance, and go out into the community and test children between three and four years of age to see if they could detect early some visual loss or vision that wasn't developing. And that worked to some extent. So these are important things that are adjunct measures to detect early vision problems. So. And check it when you're early. Don't yes, wait early. until... The earlier, the better. The earlier, the better. Don't wait until you get uh, yeah. presbyopia, thanks so much, <laughs> and uh, you need your reading it. glasses. Okay. Yeah. Now, in that sort of situation, are there any other common eye things that happen that parents should watch out for? We talked about strabismus, We ta- the cross-eyed. We've talked yeah. about lazy eye. What are some other quick, easy things for parents to know or grandparents to know if they're looking at, at children and say there might be an eye problem? Yeah. You know, I'm glad you mentioned this thing about the children's uh, grandparents. For instance, I've had more than one case of a grandparent saying to the parent, you know, there's a funny reflex coming off your child's eye, you know, or, or grandson or whatever. You, you've got to get that eye checked. And sure enough, there was a tumor, for instance, inside the eye, and it prevented the normal red reflex. The child was sitting there watching television, and the grandparent looked at it and said, you know, the one eye has that nice red. Re- the other one has some yellow whitish reflex what's that it turned out to be a tumor so basically now you've scared me more than presbyopia it's not it's not that not common common. not something to consider very very uncommon to have that but it's something to keep in mind so if a grandparent says there's a funny reflex in your child's eye you better get a check Uh, the other thing is you know we do see uh, very common children get infections of the eye we call pink eye or conjunctivitis so this is uh, when the immune system gets depressed and they get a cold and sometimes they'll just pick it up from their neighbor's uh, children's eye or somebody somebody else will have it in the family and it will spread. So that's called pink eye or conjunctivitis. That's handled usually with drops. If it's a viral type, it's very difficult to get over, though. If it's a type that's caused by bacteria, we have a lot of good antibacterial, so we can usually knock it out fairly quickly. But virals are hard to knock how, out. How do you know the difference? Well, that's the point. It, it, it takes an expert to find out. I mean, your ophthalmologist has to look at that eye and find out what it is. So if you if you have pink eye, you take the eye drops for bacteria. Yeah. It just doesn't go away. Yeah. You try another set. Yeah. It just doesn't that's go away. Third strike, then. you're out. Yeah. It's viral. And probably what would viral. what would you do in that scenario? Well, in this viral, depending on which one it is. I'll, so you I'll, can figure out which virus I'll it give, is. I'll give them supportive therapy. You know, something called adenovirus, which affects the eye, it affects the glands around the neck and, and around the uh, jaw and submandibular glands. So those are those are things that we can usually detect. I usually give them supportive therapy in that regard, which is, you know, eye washes and things like that. But you can't, the, the, the uh, antibiotic's not going to shorten the 
the disease because the virus doesn't respond to it. So if, if you are treated as if it's bacterial, it doesn't work, it's probably viral. Yeah. Could, could, a, could a pediatrician or a parent tell the difference between bacterial or viral at home? Well, the biggest, I'd say the tip-off was this. If the child gets up and, and the eye is red, but the eyelids are not stuck together with a lot of pus, it's probably viral. It's a watery discharge with viral. However, if it's really pussy and a lot of discharge and lids are all stuck together, that's probably bacterial, and that's much more common. I would say 10 times to 20 times more common. So when I see people in the office and mm -hmm. I say, hey, it looks like you got pink eye, yeah. I want to try some of these antibiotics for you. Yeah. If they don't usually, if they don't wear contacts or put anything yeah. in their eye, yeah. mm -hmm. give it a try. If it yeah. sounds like it's bacterial, if not, right. go see your eye doctor. Because right. that's another thing, foreign bodies in the eye. Does yeah, that happen a lot body, in kids? It can happen with kids and they can get there and, and they won't know unless they're examined with something called the slit lamp biomicroscope, which we look at the eye with and we find out whether there's actually a foreign body or sometimes it's tucked up under the lid and I have children who come in to complain of the eye being red and itchy and ter terrible you know sore and I have to flip the lid over and find a foreign body and I take it out and that, those are things that really have to be done by uh, somebody who knows what they're doing on that too. Yeah, and that would not be me. <laughs> I do not want to have to flip someone's lid and try and take out a foreign body. It's one yeah. of those things yeah. that uh, I think really you need an eye expert to do that. Check that out. So yeah. if, you're, if your child complains, I can't see stuff, if you find out they have this unusual reflex when you're, when you're watching TV, or even when you take pictures, I mean, you yeah. might notice yeah, that. Yeah, in a photograph. Everybody, right, don't, yeah. don't correct the red eye yeah, yet. Let's photograph. see what happens. Yeah. And also if they complain of... Pain in their eye, definitely mm -hmm. a reason. Pain in the eye, you got to really check get it. Get it checked out. Absolutely. And if, if it's red and it's just yeah. pink eye and it goes away, yeah. be happy. But there is the potential that it could be something more. Right. And above all else, you're going outside. I want to see some more kids and parents and all of us wearing the sunglasses. Yes, that would be a good idea. They don't have to look cool. <laughs> Actually, I think after the age of 18, they start to think they do look cool. But we want to get the youngsters involved earlier, too. So, All right. So definitely time to, uh, to consider wearing the glasses. Well, Dr. Ng, thanks so much for your, uh, sharing your expertise with us today on The Body Show. Oh, it's a pleasure being here. Thank All you. All right. We're going to have to get you back. Dr. Malcolm Ng is practicing full-time ophthalmologist at Kapiolani Medical Center, part-time painter. We didn't even talk about that. Part-time surfer who won the Legends Division of the Hawaii State Championships in 2003 and 2004. I think you had another title you were going to go get. You were number two and going to well, defend. The, the, it's now called the Golden Legends, believe it or not. Golden I call, Legends. I, I call it the Medicare Division. All right. The Medicare Division of the Surfers. If you'd like to hear this show again, you can click on www.hawaiipublicradio.org. Follow the links to The Body Show. Our engineer is David Chong, our executive producer, Beth Ann Kozlovich. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll see you next Monday at 5 on The Body Show.